change the way it's done, do it quicker, faster, whatever it is, that's true innovation. How'd they do that? Step number one would be try it. Have you tried? What, what innovation are you talking about? What's the number one priority? What do we have to innovate first? Hi everyone, Mark here and welcome to the Indifference Podcast. This is where I have conversations with people at the top of the game and try and figure out what is it they do to create progress in their space. Today, my guest is David Langer, who is head in neurosurgery at Lenox Hill. David also founded Playback Health. Since taking over at Lenox Hill, David has built a world-class team of specialists. And the really interesting thing is that this started from scratch. We all know that sometimes it takes a team to achieve certain things, and this conversation is packed with insights on many of the key aspects of what it takes to actually make that happen. So I really hope you enjoy our conversation and I'll talk to you soon. David, thanks very much for joining me today. It's uh, great to be talking to you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So if we just begin at the, the very start, you know, looking at your journey so far, you know, what was it that first got you interested in creating a team of neurosurgeons? And I think um, I had been in, this is the fourth hospital that I've worked in, in New York City since I left my residency. And I can't say that I really knew what I was doing at the beginning. You know, I, I, I had been in, you know, a series of environments that were suboptimal for a variety of different, each one for maybe different reasons. Um, I can't tell you I really knew what I was going to do other than I was unhappy with the current situation and had a general idea about the way to do it the right way. I mean, New York city is probably the worst way to do what I was trying to do because it's such a, it's such a money driven place. You know, I mean, it's one thing if you're in a university town or a place where the cost of living is less, but I think unfortunately healthcare in New York city is, is kind of the, the worst, of the worst when it comes to, money being the uh, focus of, of the decision-making and the talent and the acquisition in the hospitals. It's just, a, you know, it's the very financially driven business. And um, so overcoming that obstacle uh, was just challenging in medicine anyway, which ultimately is, lies underneath all our problems. And doing New York City, because New York City's um, you know, the financial capital of the world, potentially, at least back then, <laughs> um, uh, made it additionally problematic to even consider doing something like we did it. You said during that time you were a bit unsure of, you know, okay, look, what might be the best way, but you had an idea of what might be a better way. Uh, you know, what was the big thing that kind of made that fairly clear in your mind? Well, you respect the fact that um, in American medicine, we're paid to do procedures in general. The more we do, the more we get paid. And especially in neurosurgery in New York City where there were way too many subspecialists. You know, you want to operate. It's not, it's not entirely money driven, but people like to work. They'd like to do the things that they like to do. And the trouble is, is that um, when you combine the fact that you're it's competitive and that the cases are are sort of fought over and that um, uh, you're have to put you know food on your table for your family. Um, there's a lot of, uh, perverse incentives that go into your, yourself personally over time, not to mention the fact that when your group, when the hospitals hire you, they don't really care where you get your cases from as long as you're busy. And so the, the trouble is, is the very often the leaders who take over these departments, there's a fair amount of legacy, meaning there are contracts that are already written 
and there's a team already there. And very often the guy comes in and just wants to be busy himself and make his, get his, you know, chunk of change. And so that's kind of the consistent legacy environment that almost all the departments are built upon. And, um, I, they don't work very well. I, I don't think as far as their culture and their, their, uh, their, the way that people behave, I think there are really, uh, in, in the, at least in university practices, um, which are the, what I always want to stay at, you know, in a more or less an academic environment, they're, they're, they're just as competitive as a private practice environment. You know, a private practice environment is where you're not really working for a hospital, you're working for yourself. And in those situations, you're just running a business. And in some ways, those are, are both better or worse in that you can be a little more creative with, um, with the relationship internally and in, in, in cost sharing and, um, and, and basically making the, uh, the profits of the group the, 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 def- the defining goal rather than the individual's. But in general, that doesn't happen either in large part. Usually it's just covering, sharing overhead and then everybody gets paid. You see what you kill, so you get paid more if you do more. And then the private practice guys have even less of an incentive to do anything else except operate. There's no teaching. There's no, in general, there's no, there's no research. There's no writing papers. And so those guys tend to be even worse as far as the goal, which is just to make as much money as you possibly can. So that's kind of the environment of New York City medicine. And I kind of walked into that and it didn't really fit with my kind of like my ethic. And yet here I was, and I was in a series of environments that made me relatively unhappy in the way that money was such such a a difficult problem to overcome. And so I embarked, tried to come up with something that would be, because that ultimately is, is what drives everything in the wrong direction. You know, say what you want about teams and culture and collaboration. It all starts with how the money, well, how people are getting paid, how they feel their incentives are, and and how the leader is getting paid. And and so that you can, you know, who who the person setting the example for everybody else, and that's kind of how it starts. Absolutely, like this, the intent to follow what the overall purpose was in the, the first place. Uh, I suppose if we you know, take that take that in mind, and you know, I was reading some stuff online about some of your work, and you know, three big things that that stuck out for me was that the you know, just this focus on people, process, and culture within Lennox Hill that that, that you've set that up in the neurosurgery uh, yeah. department is really really uh, interesting concepts. So you know, uh, within all that, when you were putting that together, you know, how did you know what to focus on? Well, I sort of less realized that, you know, some of it is people I trusted who I can bring in. I, I had to give up a lot of myself. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. It's still, it's, it's, it's pretty difficult to do. I'm that's not surprising that, um, it's so, it's never really, I don't think, any, I don't know any place it's really been able to do it this way, but to crack it. Yeah. I mean, it's just too, it was, it was really difficult for me. You know, I mean, it, it, it's because, you know, like I, I have to, you have to give up something yourself, your reputation, you know, you, you, you we all like being busy. We all like, People, I want to do cooperate. You know, when my, especially when John came, it was absolutely the right thing to do for all the right reasons. But, you know, we overlapped quite a bit in our interests. And, you know, all of a sudden he was the guy getting all the tumors and all the cranial stuff. And I, I, you know, it was, it was difficult to accept that. You know, I had to outwardly, inwardly, I was, you know, it was very, I was very anxious, um, not knowing if it was all going to work out. You know, you, 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 you know, the way we designed, I originally recruited. Mitch, John, and Rafa first before I had a contract that allowed me, that gave me stability. I was still on a selfish contract. The health system wouldn't give me 
a kind of a leadership contract, which allows me to be kind of whole no matter what happens in my own practice. So they were incentivizing me to operate. Well, if you're, if your financial incentive is to operate, it's just to operate and not to build a program or to, you know, have talent around you. Why the hell would you do that? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, yeah. and then, so the hospitals don't, they don't, they haven't seen examples of this. And so they, they don't, and, and most of the leadership people who go in don't ask for contracts like that because they just want to make a lot of money. You know, it's, it's up to the, the person who, you know, and also Lennox was just unique because there was no legacy. You know, there was no, there was nothing here when we got here. So it gave, it was the perfect opportunity to try this because if, if I had walked into another department where there were already a group of faculty that were being, had, were contractually committed to the organization, it could take, you know, a few years to unwind all the contracts. And not only that, but, you know, if you're going there as the leader and say, you know, I'm going to, I want this contract and I still need to get paid. You know, sometimes the um, hospitals aren't willing to take that risk. They're, they're, they haven't seen examples of how that would work out. They, I mean, they, they, they had, they had ultimately gave me a flat amount of money, no matter what I did. You know, it's and a so, massive amount of faith to have, isn't it? Like yeah, that, yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing. It's like, how do you convince them that that's the right thing to do? And it takes an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of trust especially at these numbers. I mean, I do really well. I mean, if the hospital is going to take this kind of put this, you know, throw this kind of money to somebody with essentially no, you know, there's no, there's no guardrails on it. You know, you just get it no matter what, you know, you can imagine the anxiety that they have too. I'm, 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 this is not just the doctor's fault. This is the, the fault of the hospitals. It's the fault of the, of the, um, of, of the whole system. It's all, it's all perversely incentivized. And so, you know, overcoming that was difficult. And I, I think we, we did it. Um, the, the, neck, the, neck, the next thing is, you know, how do you extend this to your junior people? Like now we're, you know, we've expanded, now we have eight guys. You know, how do you continue this, this to balance this? And how do you continue to allow this sort of uh, a non, you know, financially driven or financial incentives to drive the, the, the group and, and and you have to realize there is some element of of money underneath it because everybody wants to make more money you know you can't not i mean it's one it's just it's just it just shouldn't be on a per case basis so what i tell the junior guys is look you know don't worry about how much you're making per year or per case just go do your work build your practice and then we re, we're going to redo your contract every three years and so there's just a long, you just draw out the window. Every case has become, it's not as anxiety provoking. I mean, a lot of the private practice guys or even some guys in academics who are being paid by RVU, you know, they'll, they'll look at their, their monthly revenues, their monthly, uh, what are called relative value units, the amount of volume that they've done. And they're getting paid in that number every month. And so they're look, literally looking every month at, and they all oh, had a bad month last month. I better operate more next month. And, and, and so it's just this, it's, it's chronic anxiety. You know, and you could easily it, see it altering the, the decisions that are being made with patients. It's just, well, a, of course it does. It, not only, it alters the decisions, it, it alters the, the relationship you have with one another. You know, people being busy, you don't want to, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't care if your other partners are busy. You don't want your other partners to be busy. Yeah. It just means they're making more money than you are. It kind of flies in the face of, you know, developing that world class team. But within that, you know, going back to the very start, like like what you said, you know, it was a perfect opportunity to set something up new here. You know, looking at it then over time, you know, how do you know if your approach is working? Well, I mean, I, I think the only method to see if you're, for, is everybody happy? 
are, are the guys happy? I think the answer is yes. Uh, do I want to be at work? Do the people I work with enjoy being at work? And do they leave early? Do they hang around and talk? Do they share stories? Is there, you know, what's the overall work culture? You know, I think that I just feel like it's a very kind of enjoyable place to be. So that that's one element. I think the other element is looking at our growth, just despite not having, despite not being paid per case, our volume has just gone through the roof. And that's been before Netflix. You know, we we kept every year, you know, year over year, we're 10, 15% volume increase every year. You know, that's one measure of success. I think um, we've, and that's, and I don't think we've established ourselves in New York City as a real competitor of all the major university health systems. And, you know, we, on for, for better or worse, there are four medical schools, you know, within a uh, 10 mile radius of us, major medical schools, Columbia, NYU, Sinai, um, and Cornell. So, you know, how do you compete at that? And these are some of the best healthcare systems in the world who have great neurosurgery departments that have been around for a hundred years. So how do, how do you possibly compete with that from a place that has no reputation, never had a neurosurgery department, you know, never even in, in New York city where everybody's worried about how much money they're making. And I think that the fact that we were all there's it, the, all the evidence is there. I mean, we're, we're busy. We have a lot of volume. We've been you know, ranked as one of the top 50 neuroscience divisions in this, in the country, you know, so we're getting all the external validation. Uh, we're getting the internal validation and the, the relations we have with one another. And then you look at our volume and our numbers and our outcomes, and it really speaks for itself. As your program has, has a fold over time, you know, and the team is beginning to operate better and you're seeing all these gains, you know, is there specific elements that you, you know, you stumble across and say, okay, look, now's the time to focus on that. If so, you know, how, how do you discover that? I think when, you know, the, the, um, I, I like in the, uh, I talk about the concept of a mobile, um, you know, like with all its different, you know, like a child's mobile or even a large, like a Moreau, you know, one of these massive contraptions with lots of arms and weights on it. I think that when you're putting people together, you have to recognize everybody's weight, their strength, you know, how much, you know, uh, weight they're going to put on each arm of the, of the mobile. That's really what a department is. It's, it's, you have to have it in balance. It has to be in personality balance, cultural balance, and uh, professional balance, meaning, you know, each guy brings his own skills to the table and you have to make sure that there's, there may be overlap, but you want each person to have some unique con- contribution to the department so that they feel that they own something that this, this, this is their area. And that way, things tend to move towards that the, the, those specific things. When people come in, oh, this is the this one of these one or two guys. These are the people to take care of that. Or, you know, if, if I have this problem, we know. So people feel more confident in their in their own kind of respect within the group of what they bring to the table. And that's why when you add people, you know, you have to be careful because if 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 people take to overlap too much or uh, take away too much from somebody else as far as, you know, the, the, the way that they're perceived or where cases go, it can create problems. And so the, I think the, the initial focus was just making sure that we were in relative balance, that we had strength in, in the major subspecialties of neurosurgery, but that each one of us had our own skills and, and were able to contribute 
um, in a way that made everyone feel special and made everyone feel valued. I think that's really the, the, the critical aspect to this, that, that that allows you to build a base of, of senior people. You know, most of the time, a, a, a senior person comes in and they recruit a lot of junior people all, to, all at once, because number one, the senior person gets to do everything he wants, and he sort of lords over this group of younger guys. And the younger guys are kind of made to sort of figure out what their roles are, and so they they tend to fight for the senior guy's attention and maybe even fight for a role since they don't really have reputational stability yet. They, they run into these, this kind of like competitive environment, which can be really tough, especially for a young guy just getting out of training. Whereas with us, we built top down. We, I started with these senior people or mid career people that each had reputations, each known for their subspecialty interest, including myself. And then we, we brought Jason in, who's our first junior guy, after we'd been around for a couple of years, and then Jason filled a particular role that was missing. And that way we could defer to him for certain types of problems, uh, get let him do a lot of the emergencies and a lot of things that none of us really were really that interested in doing anyway, that they were a little more humdrum, and then let him, you know, gain traction. I think his success is really the the big the greatest manifestation of our team in that. If you can bring junior people and they can be successful, that means you're doing something right because it shows that the, that kind of fertile atmosphere uh, works for the junior people. And then what you do is you gradually allow the senior guys to, um, you know, they, they're, they've got a, a senior level contract. They're making, you know, a good amount of money and, and that they're comfortable with. They're not really looking to get a raise every year, but once they know that they're safe and they're in safe Harbor and they're not going to get penalized, they, they're more comfortable turning things over to the junior people as they build their reputation, you know. And, and I think you have to have balance with how old people are. If you have, if everybody's you know forty years old and then your junior people are thirty five, it's it's not you know it's, you have to have sort of a spread of different ages and and then you see what programs are balanced, whether it's spine or tumors or vascular. And so we know where the next recruit has to come because of the age of you know, what people's career horizons are. And so I think that by taking money out of it as a, as an incentive, money underlies a lot of the decision-making, but we're getting paid well, but we're not getting, we know that we're going to be supported and that we don't have to worry about doing every case in order to get paid. And we know the senior people are okay giving up cases and the junior people are primarily responsible for doing you know, the, the hard work and, and doing more of the volume uh, to support the whole department. And, and they will gradually, their, their incomes will rise over time. And I think that's kind of the, the overall gestalt of this thing. Um, you know, it does start at the top. I mean, I, I give up cases all the time, even though I know I could do them. If it's not a case that's in my particular interest, I will turn it over to one of my junior guys or even one of the senior guys that does things. And I know I can do the case. In fact, I'd like to do the case. But if I was more selfish and if I was holding on to things, then there'd be less, there'd be, you'd you'd have a harder time um, for the rest of the faculty to do that. And you have to lead from the front. You know, if you don't set an example for everyone and are willing to live with the consequences, then you have no, you have no way that you can, you can ask the other guys to do that. And I think, but it's hard. I mean, I like to operate. I feel like I'm a good surgeon. Uh, if a case comes in just because, you know, one of my other guys is also good at it, I have to be willing to recognize that and, and let other people shine. 
And um, that's probably one of the hardest things about leadership is, um, is, is not doing as many, as much of the things as you like to do and doing, you know, some of the things that you don't like to enjoy as much at, you know, to the benefit of the group, because everybody wants to be special and you have to put your, yourself in their mind. They want to have attention. They want to be respected. They want to be busy. And so you have to, you have to give them that opportunity. And sometimes, you know, you have to give up some of yourself to do that. It's fascinating just to, you know, really begin to uncover a lot of the factors that are working in the background that are driving our behavior, particularly within these high performance teams. Well, especially in medicine, I think people don't realize, you know, doc, you know, people think doctors are, you know, this wonderful idealistic vision of the way physicians are. And, you know, I think we all start off that way. Most of us do. We all start off very idealistic. Um, Many of us are, you know, some guys are more money focused than others and they peel off early, but, I think that in the end, um, this is, uh, this is, we're just like everyone else. You know, we have to make a living and we have to, but we all have a calling. I think and you have, the, the onus is on me to find those people. I mean, it goes without saying that if you don't have the right personalities, you know, the people have to be driven by doing the right thing to a fault. And, um, you know, the other thing is once you start taking away uh, financial incentive, your indications improve, many people are doing surgery for the right reasons. They, they're more comfortable opening themselves up to suggestion and getting help, you know, asking for other opinions, maybe doing something that they wouldn't have normally done or doing less rather than more. And all this, you know, is underlying this that all ultimately results in a better outcome for the patients, a better patient experience, a better doctor experience, a better nurse experience, you know, just a better overall life to live. And um, it all starts with how you design it from the beginning. And I, I'm very convinced that this is the right way to do it. I, I, there are very few places that run like this, though. It, it is that. You know, that's you know, certainly so true. A lot of times when you look at the underperformance in certain areas, you can actually trace the route back to the very start. This system just wasn't set up to, to work uh, towards the outcomes that we all value. But you know, within that whole system so far, uh, David, you know, what have been some of your biggest insights uh, you mean, I think overall that this is, it is doable. I mean, I think, you know, there's an, an element of um, people thinking that you just can't do it. it. It is, it is very possible if you choose wisely, organize people with a, you know, with similar goals that you can disconnect from kind of the real world in a way and um, really focus on doing the right thing. You know, the world, it's, the world's awful. I mean, to be idealistic and optimistic in today is, is awfully tough. And um, I think that um, our ethic is that this can be done, that you can enjoy yourself. You can share experience and, and enjoy the success of others and feel other people's pain. You know, the majority of, um, of departments or groups or even, you know, we look at other people around the city, around the country, people have a remarkable degree of schadenfreude and jealousy. I mean, I think they're the same emotion, basically. And they, I think schadenfreude and jealousy uh, drives most of the relationships in, in, in this profession. Um, you know, there, there's no one's really celebrating people's success and certainly um, are, feel, feel the pain of someone's failure. And, and, and we are able to do that here. I, I, I enjoy seeing my junior people and, and our, and our senior guys be successful. And when there's a complication, I certainly don't feel as badly that they do. Um, but I, I feel I'm always, you know, reaching out and I think they, I get the same thing in, in return. Now, if I have a complication in one of my cases, 
I know the guys really mean it when they come to me and see how I'm doing. Uh, because uh, that's part of medicine. It's part of neurosurgery. We're going to fail sometimes. And the worst thing is, is that there's this fear of failure, what other people are thinking or covering up your mistakes. And it, 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 it you at the junior level, you don't learn as much and you're just too afraid to tell people what really happened or what your real decision was. And this kind of oh, it just drops that down. I think the junior guys really benefit from that, that they realize they're not going to be crucified if they make a mistake. And then they're more likely to ask for help and, it all, it all, it all, it's like a, it's basically a, a vicious cycle and a, it snowballs in effect in a, po- in a positive way. And it allows us to really essentially one plus one becomes 11 uh, compared to a lot of other pluses where one plus one and a lot of other places where one plus one is, you know, like one and a half. Absolutely. And like, it's, that's very true. You know, in these very competitive, really high performance environments and that's, you know, starting off point that we are going to fail here that this isn't about being right all the time. No, no matter how hard we try, that just isn't how this is going to pan out. Uh, was that a massive shift kind of mindset to, to to change, particularly in junior staff coming in, but also in the hospital management team when they were kind of giving you free reign at the start to set this up? It's really tough. I mean, there, there's no examples of this that I've ever seen. I took a huge risk by leaving a very busy practice and I have, I have a family and I kept kids in school and, you know, I left a very, you know, busy job to go start over from zero. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I just, I just knew that uh, first of all, I knew I was very talented. You know, I, I was very self-confident. I, I knew that I could, at the worst I could operate on any, I was a good surgeon and that I'd make it work one way or the other. So I was confident in my own abilities to fend for myself. So that if, you know, the worst case scenario, I just operate and I'll be fine. Um, you know, I think a lot of people just thought I was going to come into Lennox and just not recruit anybody and just have my own practice and lord over it. You know, it's, I would have made a lot more money doing that, but what, it's thankless. You know, you don't have, you can't share experience and how long you want to do that for. And, you know, how do you, I, I love, I love what I do. I want to be able to do it in my 60s and 70s. You can't possibly you know, do as much surgery when you're 70 years old as you do when you're 50. It's just impossible. And um, this allows me to enjoy it. I, I, I don't, I don't, I come to work every day and more or less, you know, if I'm not busy, if I don't have surgery to do, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I wish I was operating, but I know that it's, that there's no, there's no downside to me. And I, as long as the group's successful, I, I'm happy and I can, um, I find other things to do, whether it's at work or outside of work. And I think that, um, I'd be lying to you if I knew it would turn out this well. Like, you know, I'm sort of a shock, to be honest. But um, it, it, it basically is, uh, I think, emblematic of that if you stick to your guns and, and really focus on North Star stuff, like the North, like that's the old North Star versus Gold Star uh, leadership. I think if you focus on this, this vision you have, you know, you can fail along the way. You can make mistakes. You have to recalibrate sometimes. Not not everything's perfect, and there are definitely bumps in the road. But I think that um, you, you end up much better off in the end than if you're just doing it like everybody else. Again, it comes back that your whole like unique contribution to the to the overall team effort. But so sh- shifting it towards the end of our conversation, then Davis, you know, what are your hopes for creating teams of healthcare specialists in the future? Well, honestly, I, I don't know. You know, I, I must say that uh, the the health system itself, I don't think, really understands what I did. Um, and there, it's so big. We have a $13 billion system. 
that there's that this is an extreme, it's really you know an extraordinary accomplishment we've done, and yet it's just you know another blip on the screen. And so you know I'm 57 years old. I you know have a lot left in me, and I really have to. I'm really thinking about what my next you know what right, I could continue to do what I'm doing now for the rest of my life. I'd be very happy doing it, but. By the same token, to translate the lessons that I've learned into something greater is always underneath me. You know, the, the same personality traits that led me to leave a cushed, a great job, at least out on the outside, and all this business busyness and all these great cases that let me do that to start from zero in New York City in a zero hospital. And that that same personality is underneath this. So you're not going to change yourself. So the you know, mom, will I ever be comfortable in a kind of like it's kind of like I'm much more of an innovator and a startup guy than I am like a, a, G, a General Motors or a Siemens. You know, once yeah. once it becomes like you know humdrum and back to the you know just a big department, it, it's 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 a, it's less interesting. The question is whether I'm willing to either do it all over again or or figure out a way to do this in a bigger in a bigger way. And I I, I don't I don't know if I can do that here. Um, at, at Northwell, I, I don't. In fact, I don't think I can. So, you know, what happens next has more to do with, um, you know, if someone sees me from the outside and says we'd like you to try that here, or whether I find a way, an expression for some of my creativity elsewhere in our health system. I think you know, that remains to be seen. I'm very involved in IT and developed a a, um, a mobile application called Playback Health, which is um, kind of Instagram for healthcare where doctors and nurses and healthcare providers can make videos, audios, texts, PDFs, just upload them to a mobile for patients, and then they can share and exchange information through video. I've seen that. That's a, it, it's, a, it's an incredible tool to have, particularly with, I think, there being that recognition that, look, there needs to be a big shift here. You know, we might have these $13 billion systems. We might have, you know, millions of people interacting with our healthcare system every year, but we need more personalized solutions as, as, as we do this. They're key tools, I think. What if uh, that's a big way to express your creativity of how you like to see the future yeah, so go? Well maybe, so well, maybe I'll just continue doing this. We'll let this thing run and I'll, we have a kind helped I used to help develop a company. I'm not really running the day to day of the company, but um, the idea that underlied it raised money and now it's running on its own. So, you know, do I get more involved in healthcare IT? Do I use some of these lessons learned about culture and 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 collaboration at a, in a different level? So, I, you know, I'm still sort of hashing through some of those things for the yeah. time being, and um, we'll see. You know, I'm I'm. I'm much more confident than I've ever been that if whatever I do, I kind of these these cultural ideas and this kind of, you know, selfishly unselfish behavior, you know, focusing on um, how to do these things in, 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 in a way that are different and unique in the way the structure is and, and the way the types of people you surround yourself by and the importance of, of those early decisions, the early you know, organizational structure, financial structure, th- those things are critical right from the very beginning, whether it's in healthcare, Wall Street, league, you know, anything. And I, I think that unfortunately, um, it's a startup mentality because by definition, you're not going to walk, it's very hard to walk into a pre-existent business and radically alter everything and get away with it. There are too many losers, at least in some people's minds, and the people who gain are the, often the ones who weren't even there to begin with. And so make transitioning to that's awfully hard. 
because it's like a, you have to go through, uh, you know, essentially, you know, tear everything down to rebuild it. So I think that's why this inherently appeals to a startup mentality. That if, if you don't, if there's no DNA and there's no legacy, um, you're much more able to initiate these things in the beginning and let it happen. It's like powder skiing. You know, you, 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 there's no trail, so you're not, there are no bumps there. You do, when you just have a whole freaking powder field in front of you, you can turn anywhere and it's pretty nice. And so, you know, whether, how the trail looks at the end of the, end of the time you're skiing is depending on how you make your turns. But long story short, I mean, it, it's, it's, that's why the right opportunities have to come up too. You know, I'm not yeah. going to walk into some pre-existent big university department and take it over. It doesn't appeal to me. Yeah. Um, and so I have to just see what comes down the road. I, I'm hopeful that what people saw in Lenox Hill, um, that people like you saw something other than uh, the doctor. They saw the bigger picture, and that I might impact um, on another, you know, another group some way. If if this isn't uh, my endpoint, I'd welcome those opportunities. Absolutely, David. Thanks very much for uh, taking the time to talk with me today. It's been absolutely fascinating to see the innovation that went from start uh, right up to now and how it's, uh, how it's expanded as well. So thanks for your time and best of luck with everything. You too, bud. All thanks the best. Hi, right, Mark here again. Thanks for listening and I really hope you enjoyed our conversation and picked up a few insights from it. Be sure to leave us a rating from where you get your podcasts and even better, share it with a friend who you think will enjoy it. Thanks again, and I hope you tune in next week.